Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. So I remember the first time and only time I was ever in an earthquake. I lived in San Francisco and I'd been there for a couple months and the ground had not shook yet. And then all of a sudden one morning I felt something move and it wasn't me or my car, it was the floor beneath me. It was a small one, it wasn't big, but I'm a Texas kid. I grew up in storms, storms didn't bother me, hail didn't bother me, tornadoes didn't bother me. You just get in the bathtub with the ones you hold dear and then hold on for dear life, you know? Earthquakes are different because not only could you not see on the radar that it's going to get there at 619 exactly, couldn't hear it coming, you couldn't see it coming, and the worst part is, it fundamentally shook the thing that you think doesn't shake the most. And so from then on forward, it's this moment of, is it going to happen again? Is it going to happen now? Well, this thing that I thought didn't move, move again. Earthquakes are incredibly disorientating. That's what I feel like this week. I feel like... The week we've had societally, the week we've had as a parent, the week we've had as Texans, is incredibly disorientating. It's hard. And so today, we're going to start a new series next week. Today, I want to talk about that a little bit. I want to spend some time talking about the Christian response to tragedy. I want to talk about in this week that's kind of thrown me up and down the truths that I'm trying to hold dear to and remember Because when we are disorientated, so often we forget what truth is. But before we get into that, we're going to take some time and pray. This week has shown us now more than ever that when bad things happen, things that we can't explain or didn't expect, the response societally is just to find fault with whomever you can. We're an angry people because you know what happens when tragedy occurs? We get mad. Some of that's a righteous anger. It shouldn't be this way. Let's call that out and yell it from the mountaintops. But then we have to find somewhere for our fault to go. And so we blame cops and we blame guns and we blame politicians. It is their fault. But it's, it's, <laughs> kidding, kind of. <laughs> we blame one another. We blame the left. We blame the right. We blame pastors. We blame fill in the blank. And the beauty of this space, what we do every week, is we come together and say, this is not a space where we find fault with those around us. This is a space where we deal with the God of the universe, where we deal with the God that created us, where we listen for how God is leading us to look more like Jesus. We say the move of the Spirit is inward to conviction, not outward to critique. This morning, God is going to speak to you. Listen for what he has to say. So I'm going to lead us in a prayer. I'll give you time to pray by yourself if you want to, if you're comfortable. Pray for me, and then we'll kick this thing off. Pray with me. God, I'm thankful we can be here. I'm thankful in a week like this week that we have the grace of coming together and remembering and finding truth and perspective. So Holy Spirit, speak to us. Allow us to remember why you're good in hard moments that don't seem good. Holy Spirit, Remind us of the beauty of God in ugly moments today. If you're comfortable, just say a quick prayer and ask the Spirit to speak to your spirit this morning.
I ask that you pray for me, that I might do a good job in a tough conversation. And that through the texts we go through and the points we make, that we all might remember the goodness of God in a hard week. Praise things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Hey, so before we get into it, a little, little disclaimer here. Um, this chat today has nothing, and I mean nothing, to do with politics. I, I personally don't believe that politics has much of a place in this platform on this pulpit. I believe strongly that God cares about values that both side values. I believe strongly that if your God can fit entirely into a box labeled Democrat, Republican, or other, that you need to ask who your God really is. I believe entirely that if your political platform causes you to hate those people that don't believe it, you need to ask what you're worshiping. I believe that politics in this platform don't necessarily need to go together. Now that said, I also have strong political views, and I'd love to share them with you sometime. <laughs> I, am, I am not a shy person, nor am I soft-spoken. I actually have a group of friends that we have people on all the different, there's three of us, political sides of the spectrum. And during the last election, I made bingo cards, and we sat together and watched the debate and played debate bingo. And you're all thinking, man, I want to be your friend, right? Uh, I have strong political views. I, I think I'd love to share them with you, just not from this stage. This is not a church where we're going to tell you how to vote, all right? <laughs> there are those churches. This is not one of them. This is not a conversation about politics. This is a conversation about injustice and what we do. Because here's one thing I know. This week I've talked to friends that are absolutely anti-gun, that think we should take them all away. And I've talked to friends who are absolutely pro-gun, that believe this would not have happened if we would have armed everybody. And I know in the middle of that that both sides were brokenhearted when this happened. Both sides wept. This is not a conversation about politics. It's that quote that I love that we've used before, that we so often in our world see the other side as their worst example by, and then look at us through our best intention. This is not a conversation about politics. This is a conversation about what to do when tragedy happens as followers of Jesus. Knowing full well that we all want the same thing, People to know God and love God and flourish in God's world. And so today where we start is this idea that when pain happens, when pain occurs, let me tell you what happens right next. The first thing that goes when pain appears is your perspective in this world. And I know that's true because you know what? Do this. Next time you stub your toe, say exactly what's going through your mind, right? I promise you, in the middle of pain, the first thing that will go is perspective. We see it all throughout the scriptures. Psalm 13 is one of the best examples. Psalm 13 is when David starts on the run from his father-in-law and from the people that he loved because God chose him to be a king. Saul didn't like it. He had this great call on his life, and he thought, this is going to be a great journey. And then everybody turns against him. And for a decade, this man, whom God chose, had to be on the run for his life. And it's called the cave years. He lived in caves. And so he ran from this one city, this is the beginning of it. He comes to this other city and he says in Psalm 13, verse 1, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? The first thing that goes in the middle of pain is perspective. David forgot who God was and what God promised. David forgot the goodness of God to him up to this point, how God chose him out of nowhere to lead people. 
David forgot the perspective that God brings in the middle of pain. We all do that. And so today, while we're all in some form of pain, I want to find some perspective. I want to remind us of what we know to be true in a disorientating time. I want to orient ourselves around a good and beautiful and trustworthy God. And so here's where we begin. We begin by acknowledging the simple truth that this is not God's fault. We want to find something or someone to blame. And and so often when we can't, we blame the thing that we know we can't control. We blame any kind of narrative or deity that we have. The scriptures make it very clear that God has nothing to do with evil. James 1, let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil and he does not tempt anyone. 1 John 1, 5, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. We could spend all our time on this, we won't. But simply to say, it's enough to say that God did not want this to happen and he did not cause it to happen. God created the world with the rule of love to live by. His his creation in and of itself was a manifestation of his overwhelming love that they had for Father, Son, and Holy Spirit spilling onto the canvas of creation. We were supposed to live in that love and share that love to all those around us so that our joy might increase as we see that God is good and worthy and magnificent and worshipful. We were supposed to live in this beautiful world governed by the law of love. The problem is when we disorient our loves, our world gets disordered and things break. A friend of mine would describe it and say that the, the love of God is like a wind and we're sailboats. And when we live into the rhythms of God's love, we go forward. When we fly in the face of God's love, disorientated or disordered loves, we fly against the rhythm or the wind of God's loves and things get broken and hard. And so whenever we love the wrong things, whether it's ourselves too much, whether it's someone else too much, whether it's our hate instead of our compassion for one another, we see things start to break. God did not want this to happen. And this brings us to the first point that I've tried to remember this week. In the middle of tragedy, the first thing we need to see is that absolutely God hurts when we hurt. God is not exempt from the pain that tragedy causes. One of my favorite verses to go to in the middle of grief is Genesis 6. So in Genesis 6, it's the beginning of the flood narrative with Noah. And, and the world got bad, like real bad, you know? You think it's bad now, read Genesis 6. It literally says in the text leading up that the thoughts of man were only evil all the time. All the time. The earth was in a really, really bad place. The selfishness and the pride and the, the downtroddenness of humanity had overtaken humanity. And it says in Genesis 6.6, the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. Sometimes we think God is detached from us because maybe we can't see him because we went to Sunday school and always we're told that he's up somewhere else. We get the feeling that God doesn't feel the things that hurt us. That's not the God the scripture portrays. We have this idea that God is the, the red pen God. You know what I'm talking about? Like the God that waits for us to turn in our test that the teacher that really didn't like you and marks your paper off with joy when you get something wrong. He takes, for some reason, pleasure in our pain because we've messed up the world and is really angry about it. That's not the God the scriptures talk about over and over and over again. Starting in Genesis, all the way through Jesus and Revelation, the scripture paints the picture that a God who hurts, he hurts when we hurt. 
That word there in Genesis 6, when it says he was grieved with his heart, that word there literally means, it's used in the Old Testament to connotate the loss of a child. (laughs) I think I begin in the middle of tragedy, knowing full well that God didn't cause this, God didn't want this, and God is affected by our pain because he feels pain too. It's important to know because if God didn't feel our pain and just watched our pain, I'm not listening to what's next. So we start with this place that God feels our pain. He grieves when we grieve because we are his children. And I'd actually take it farther and say, God doesn't just grieve when we grieve. God actually grieves more than we grieve. So you think you hurt? Let me tell you, God hurts more than you. Do you know why? Because we are God's children. I always was heard it told to me as a kid that when my parents would discipline me in any way they felt possible, they would say, this hurts me more than it hurts you. And I never, ever, ever believed it until I had a kid, you know? This week, my daughter's been, been sick, pretty sick. Really, really high fever for about four going on five days now, and she hasn't quite kicked it. And, and it's, it's terrible to see your kid hurting. And, and she, for some reason, uh, she, she will not take medicine. She needs to because the fever is very high, but she won't take medicine. We have these kids' chewable tablets, and we also have the liquid. I also crush it up and try to put it in applesauce, and she won't take it. And there's been a couple times when my wife and I have literally had to hold her down and make her take medicine, and she's screaming and crying and saying, don't do this, don't do this. I hurt, I hurt. And do you know who hurts more than my daughter? Me. It's horrible. It's a funny quip, but I always think back through to uh, Ryan Reynolds' celebrity and uh, lookalike for me. Ryan Reynolds, <laughs> when you laugh, it doesn't build my self-confidence. That was an amen moment, not a laugh moment, but thank you, everybody. Ryan Reynolds was asked about what it means to be a father. There's only certain things in life you can do that grow your understanding of how much God loves you. And being a father is one of those. You just don't understand how your love can grow until you have a kid. And so he said that I love my wife more than anything. He was doing an interview with, I think, David Letterman. And David Letterman said, what's it like being a father? How much do you love your kid? And he said, I love my wife more than anything. I would take a bullet for her 10 times over. He said, 30 seconds after seeing my daughter, I knew I would use my wife as a human shield to protect my baby, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And he was being funny, but man, the ways and the depths for which we love our kids is almost inexplainable. When God sees his kids hurt, he hurts more. He hurts because we're his children. He feels our pain. But more than that, I think not only does he hurt because we are his children, I think he hurts because he sees the potential of what would be that's robbed by the evil around us. So John 11, classic funeral text that people go to. You know the story, uh, Lazarus dies and, and Jesus is told Lazarus is di- dead and so he goes and greets Mary and Martha. And in this text, I'll read in verse 34, when Jesus saw her weeping and the people who had come with her weeping, he was intensely moved in spirit and greatly distressed. Again, our pain hurts God because God feels our pain because God loves us. He asked, where have you laid him? They replied, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept, John eleven thirty-five. Here's my question. In the text, why does Jesus cry? Why? He actually says in the verses previous to this that this is a good thing that Lazarus dies. His disciples say, hey, Lazarus is sick. And he's like, this is good. You're going to get to see God's glory. This is a good thing for you. So he seemingly says, when he finally hears that Lazarus passes, he says, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Jesus isn't necessarily sad that Lazarus is dead. Jesus doesn't weep because Lazarus died. Guess what, guys? He knew it was coming next. 
He knew he was about to heal Lazarus. He knew the guy would actually live. Jesus isn't crying because Lazarus is dead. Jesus is crying because he's looking around and seeing the absolute effect of sin on the good, perfect world he created. He weeps because of the pain inflicted on his people and he sees the potential of what could have been. I went to a private school in Dallas and my class was kind of like the high watermark for that private school. And I know you think I'm just being cocky. I am. But it also was. <laughs> it was the biggest class they ever had. And you know, if you want to talk about scholarship money, it was just, you know, kind of grew. And it was affiliated with the church. And that church moved the year after I graduated, moved to the school. And they made some bad decisions after that. There's some poor leadership and, and they moved into a harder place, I think, for them to grow and thrive. Anyway, it just didn't go well. And so... I never went back to that campus. I never went back to that school, but it moved about 10 or 15 miles north of where it was. And I remember the first time they asked me to come back and do a chapel. I moved back here. I became a pastor. Everybody was shocked. You got over that. And then they said, can you come back and do a chapel? I said, oh, no. <laughs> and they said, why not? And I said, because I really didn't like those things growing up, you know? And they convinced me, and I said, absolutely. I came back and did a couple of them. But it was really sad. It was sad to go back to this place that I had fond memories of and see it literally dying because it did. The school shut down now. It was sad every time to come back and see numbers be smaller and quality be lesser. It was sad. You get the same feeling in the Old Testament, Ezra 3, when the people of God are displaced by Babylon and they come back and they build this new temple and you have two groups of people, one that are screaming God is good and the other that are weeping because they remember the old temple and how small this one was. Why is God more sad than you or me? Because he sees the potential that was missed when evil takes it away. So I think not only is God not the cause of these things, his sadness is deepened because he understands the depravity and he understands the potential of what could have been. Uh, on a side note, some people would say, well, God knew it was coming, so he can't be that sad. I would disagree with that premise 100%. There's a, a movie in a book called Beautiful Boy, A Father's Journey Through His Son's Addiction by David Schiff. And if you've seen the movie, it's really good, but essentially what it does is it talks about how this father's heartbroken for his kids who's addicted to drugs. And even though the father knew that his kid was going to relapse and keep stealing his money and keep putting himself in harmful places, it did not mitigate the sadness the father felt when pain happened. Just because you know something's coming doesn't mean you fully feel the pain that that moment brings. So we hurt, and God hurts more than us. And I know that's hard to fathom, but he does. We don't serve a God who watches us suffer from the sidelines. God is not a God of apathy, but of empathy. And so his empathy towards us doesn't allow him simply to sit still in heaven and watch us from a distance. Instead, he decides to move. So in our tragedy, God doesn't simply feel our pain. God draws near. We have this monitor in my room this week from my kids been in pain. And I can hear you know, all the night long coughing or whatever she's doing. And there's a couple moments when it's 1 a.m., 2 a.m., 3 a.m. I'll just hear my daughter yell, Dad, you know? And in those moments when I know she's hurting because I feel empathy and, and empathy leads to action, when she yells, Dad, I don't roll over onto my deaf ear and say, I'll catch you in the morning, kid, you know? I don't wake up and I don't splash water on my face and make sure that I look okay to walk in my daughter's room when 
My daughter yells, Dad, when she's in pain, I throw off the covers and I run down the hallway and I said, what do you need my empathy for? My daughter always moves towards action. God's empathy towards our pain always had moved towards action before the world began. God knew it would break and God knew how he would fix it. And this is one of the defining characteristics between our God and other gods in our world. It's this beautiful picture that God knew the world was broken and he knew that he would run to us. John 1, popular verse. Now the world became flesh and took up residency among us. There's a pastor back in the day, friends with Billy Graham named Charles Templeton. And he was a pastor for a long time and then he stopped being one. And he was interviewed about it and he asked why he stopped being a pastor and he said, it became difficult for me to believe in the goodness of God. And he said a moment that did it for him was when he was looking at this photo of this woman in Africa and she was holding her child who was dying of severe drought. And she asked the question we all ask, where is God in these moments? That's the question we ask in trials and that's the question we ask in tragedy is where is God in these moments? And what's really important in those moments where like David, we look around and say, God, where are you and what are you doing? We have to recognize and realizing that the answer, the answer to where is God is the incarnation. There's a, a professor of philosophy at Boston College, also at King's College. Um, he, his name's Peter Kreeft. He's one of my favorites. And he answers the question of where is God, especially in, in Templeton's case of the photo in Africa and the kid that was dying. He says, where is God? Why God, doesn't God send the rain? God's answer is the incarnation. He himself entered into all that agony. He himself bore all the pain of his world. And that's unimaginable and shattering and even more impressive than the divine power of creating the world in the first place. Where is God in our pain? He decided to enter into it when he didn't have to. That's why he's worthy of worship in tragic situations. He experienced all of the pain of this world. He experienced isolation and fatigue. He experienced abandonment. He experienced physical pain. He experienced separation from God. And man, Jesus experienced all of it when he didn't have to because he hurts when we hurt and he loves us more than we can fathom or realize. I love how John Stott says it. It's a long read, but it's a good one. John Stott says, the single greatest challenge of the Christian faith has reached his own conclusion for it. I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I've entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha, his legs crossed, his arms folded, his eyes closed, and a ghost of a smile playing around his mouth. A remote look in his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time, after a while, I've had to turn away. And in imagination, I've turned instead to that lonely, twisted, torture figure on the cross. Nails through his hands and feet, his back lacerated limbs wretched, brow bleeding, mouth dry and tolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That's the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in light of this. There is still a question mark against human suffering, but... Over it, we boldly stamp another mark, the cross, which symbolizes divine suffering. The cross of Christ is God's only self-justification in a world such as ours. Corrigan Boom said it like this when she asked about suffering, no matter how deep our darkness, he is deeper still. 
in the middle of tragedy, it's very important. It's very, very important that we realize and recognize that God's fault. He hurts with us and he's the one that drew near when he didn't have to because he cares. God never promises we won't suffer. He promised we wouldn't be alone. Last night, my kid's fever spiked again and it's like 2 a.m. and she yelled dad, so I went in there and she's laying on her floor of her room just kind of saying, I hurt. I'm like, I, I know. And her fever had spiked and we tried to give her some medicine and I said, hey, can I put you in your bed? She said, no, I don't like my bed. This is more comfortable. And I said, okay. And it's 2 a.m. So in my head, I'm, I'm wrestling with the fact like, man, I got to get up in a couple hours and be coherent for you people, you know? Um, I got to put words and thoughts together and I got to filter out the ones that I don't need to say out loud and I got to, you know, do the ones that matter and, and, and I need to rest for this thing. Because when I don't sleep well, you just get unfiltered Chuck and unfiltered Chuck is unemployed Chuck if he's a pastor, okay? <laughs> if you knew me, you'd know that, <laughs> all right? Just FYI. <laughs> and my daughter looks at me from the floor and she says, Dad, I said, yeah. And she says, Dad, I can't, I can't sleep without you. And I said, okay. And I grabbed a pillow and I slept on the floor next to her until she fell asleep. We have to understand in those moments with my daughter, I can't say that she won't feel pain. I can say that she won't feel pain alone. That's what God does for us. We don't have to. That's what he does. And in these moments of tragedy, we begin to feel like we're all alone and God doesn't care. And the overarching theme, message, story, example we get in scripture is that God very much cares, God very much feels, and God very much runs near to you when you need him to. It's important in disorienting times to orient ourselves around the truth of God. I think, thirdly, not only does God feel our pain and not only does God draw near, but, but God's love doesn't go anywhere. And this is kind of an application point for us. I'm going to go through this quicker than I wanted to in my notes because we're a little behind, but, but I want you to know something, <laughs> that in the middle of a situation where we try and find fault, where we get angry, part of that's good, but God has called us to love people, all people, even the most messed up ones. It comes from this idea in Romans, you know the verse, Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we're sinners, Christ died for us. How is our response as Christians different than everybody else's? We recognize and realize that God loves all people, especially the, bro- the, the, the messed up ones, the broken ones. There's a, a book, and I was going to read you an excerpt, I won't. There's a book called With Justice for All by John Perkins. He's a pastor, a civil rights activist. He talks about a story in the 1970s when he was with some friends. They were in, I think it was a sundown town, and things didn't go well, and he got taken into custody because he was an African-American man in, 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 in a southern town at night. And he said the cops just started, the cops, there was five deputy sheriffs and seven other cops, they just started beating him and beating him and beating him. Within an inch of his life, they shoved forks up his nose, they kept beating him and beating him and beating him. He said he thought he was going to die that night. But he said, he asked God to save him that night, and, and he said something interesting happened. It's a really phenomenal book. He says, as these cops were beating him, he said he, he couldn't find himself to hate these people because he looked in their eyes and he saw people who were slaves to sin just like him. He said he looked in these people's eyes and he didn't see enemies. He looked in their eyes and he saw captives to sin. 
as, as Jesus followers, I think it's really important that we recognize and that we realize that this world is broken and we were all at one point captives to sin. And what that allows us to do, instead of seeing enemies and heroes, instead of seeing villains and conquerors, what we see when we look and see Jesus is the only hero, what we see in that moment is if we see the people that make very big mistakes as captives to the darkness that once held us all captives, what that allows for in my heart and soul is compassion instead of anger. That allows for mercy instead of hatred, that allows for forgiveness. It's a hard road, it's a long road. I'm not saying it's one we're gonna get to overnight. I'm simply saying it seems to me that Jesus says, love those who are your enemies. Love them and turn the other cheek. And that is a graceful response that God has with us. And so in our, in our outcries and in our anger as Christians, we hopefully remember the love of Jesus that called us to him when we didn't deserve it. We know that seeing others as captives through the lens of the love of God allows us some compassion in these moments. One writer says, the apostle Paul entered heaven to the cheers of those he martyred. That's how the gospel works. I'm not saying the kid that shot up South Texas is saved or not. That's not the point. Simply the point is to remember that we, we all need the same amount of Jesus and to find compassion for those who no one else can because that's what God did for you and that's what he does for me. One of my favorite preachers says, the great goal of the Christian is not to see enemies destroyed, but to see enemies converted into friends. So what do we know in these moments when our anger can overtake us? Is that God's job is to be angry. Our job is to love well and show compassion. And this leads us to the last thing that I'm trying to remember this week. In the middle of all of that, there is this moment that I know when, when justice is coming, when God promises to make it right. And that's something as Christians we hold on to. And part of doing that is knowing full well our place in the cosmic narrative of injustice. Because we so often in our arrogance elevate ourselves to not being part of the problem, but only part of the solution. There's a, a comic strip that I came across. It says there's a cartoon of two turtles. One says, sometimes I'd like to ask why God allows poverty, famine, and injustice when he could just do something about it. The other turtle says, I'm afraid God might ask me the same question. It's the idea that when we look at tragedy, when we look at pain, when we look at, at hurt, when we look at the problem of evil in this world, it's so much easier for us to look at other people and say, I'm not part of that problem, but it seems to me that if God wanted to rid the world of evil, he might start with me. So when we ask the question, where is God and why hasn't God rid the world of evil? I think the gracious response is, he hasn't because he loves me. <laughs> and now the other side of that is not just he hasn't because he loves me, but he will one day. And that's a promise we need to hold on to. Like we have to. I think all religion, all religion, all faith in general, all worldviews try to answer a couple fundamental questions. They give purpose to the world, they give perspective to the world, and all of them, every single one, from Mormonism to atheism to Buddhism to pick your poison there, all of them try to answer the question of, in, of injustice. Why do bad things happen? Whose fault is it? And when is it going to end? The Bible says it's ours. Jesus fixes it, and one day when he comes back. It gives us this place now to say, hey, when Jesus came, he showed us this better way to live. He showed us what we're missing out on, but we are stuck in this in-between of now in the present moment when, God, when God's kingdom is at hand through the people uh, that, that called Jesus Lord, but also one day, Revelation 19, when he comes back and fundamentally fixes the flaws of this world. And every day he does it is an opportunity for more people to see that he's good. Every single day. 
So we, as followers of Jesus, hold on to the one-day justice of God for the world that he created, to bring it back to its intended good. We know that's coming because love without punishment for wrongdoing is not very loving. And so we know that there is a good punishment for people that inflict pain. Some of that's covered with the grace of Jesus, but we will all find, we will all find that God is ultimately good at the end. That his promises are true, that he came to fix the world, and he will. And you know what helps us in that? Perspective. Because again, the first thing you lose in pain is perspective. And you know what helps with the perspective of why is God not good is just simply the perspective of eternity. There's a, a, a saint, St. Teresa. She had a really hard life. She lived in Spain in the 16th century. She joined a monastery, became an invalid for three years, and for all of her, her time in this monastery, she was downtrodden with suffering, physical and mental, and she had a very hard time in life, even though she was following Jesus well, probably asking the question, like, what did I do wrong in my love for God? How could my love for God end in me suffering? When is this going to stop? I see evil people that don't suffer, yet I do. Questions we all ask. She said this, in light of heaven, the worst suffering on earth, a life full of the most atrocious tortures on earth, will be seen to be no more serious than one night in an inconvenient hotel. Simply put, what perspective of eternity does is it doesn't necessarily diminish the pain of the present, but over the course of eternity, we forget of the pain of the present moment because we're present with Jesus. And you can do that too. You can think in the middle of this moment, it might be the hardest thing we've gone through, but imagine eternity that's 17,000 years from now, and the moment, this moment of pain is forgotten by the splendor and the glory of God's goodness forever. The answer to what happens to our memory of pain is God's goodness over time overrides it. I love what Charles Spurgeon says. In eternity, the pain of the present gets put into perspective. He says, have patience, believer. Eternity will right the wrongs of time. So Paul says too in Romans 8.18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And so in the mental of tragedy, of disorientation, that's probably not going to get better for a little while, <laughs> what do we do? We remember why we orient around a God who feels our pain, who ran towards us, who acts in love, and who one day rights all wrongs. I need to hold on to that because it's so easy to forget. So what do we do in these moments? I think a couple things. Uh, one, not just for what happened this week, but anytime we find people in pain. In, in our culture, we are so incredibly fixated on the right answer. And the problem with pain is so often I can't give one. I can sit with people dying in hospitals and I can't give one. I can sit with parents that have lost kids and I can sit with husbands that have lost wives and I can sit with people that just got cancer diagnoses and I can sit in those moments and they say why and I say I don't know. The problem sometimes is we focus on the right answer when often the right answer in the middle of pain like Jesus when he walked with us in the middle of hours, the right answer in the middle of pain is simply to be right next to the one suffering and saying I'm here. I'm here. I might not be able to fix it right now but I can be here with you. I can cry with you. I can laugh with you. It's always my goal to make people laugh in awkward situations in hospitals. I can be here for you because that's what Jesus did for us. 
The answer to the problem of evil in our world is the incarnation today and the victory of Jesus one day. So we show up for those people and instead of trying to fix it, admit that we can't. I think two, and this is where we're going to end today, is we pray. We're going to do a corporate prayer for what happened in Texas. You can pray for really any injustice you want to, but before we get into that, I want to make a couple comments about it. On Wednesday, I have my one-on-one with our comm director staff, and she said, Man, what, what should, we, should we post? What should we post about? You know, you don't want to feel empty, and, and lately there has been this move towards, you know, like, don't just post thoughts and prayers because it doesn't do anything. You get some backlash on the social media where all things good happen, and... And so we, we posted, like, we weep with those who weep, we mourn with those who mourn, we look forward to this not being our reality one day. Uh, but, but real quick, I, I kind of want to end today in prayer because I want to make sure that we recapture the value of prayer in moments of pain. Because you know what prayer does? It does two things, I think, primarily. One, I think prayer is God's fundamental tool for giving us his perspective in our world. So we often think we pray because it changes the world around us. And it does. That's point two. But point one is what prayer does is prayer shapes your perspective around the character and goodness of God. Prayer changes you. Oftentimes more than prayer changes the world around you. That's what God does. That's what the tool God uses to change us. And so when we talk about a loss of perspective and pain, what's most important is to find God's perspective. And where we mostly see that done is through prayer. So what do we do in moments of tragedy and pain? We pray because it gives us God's perspective in a moment where we've lost it. Prayer is important. And two, fundamentally, prayer changes the world around us. We know it. James tells us the prayer of righteous people changes the world around us. It's how God acts on our behalf in our world. And so never let somebody tell you that prayer is not enough. Because if you don't think prayer is enough, then you don't think enough about prayer. Because we get to speak to the God who's in control of all things, who will fix all things, who loves us in all things, and say, God, help. And that's an important thing to do. And so today we're going to end with a prayer. We're going to remember that there is power in prayer. We're going to remember that prayer reshapes our perspective around God's. We're going to remember that in these moments of pain and tragedy, God is still good. He's still worth orientating around that God cares for us, loves us, has come to save us, and will make all things right. It's what I need to hear in weeks like this. It's what I need to hear when the next one happens. Because he doesn't promise we won't be without pain. He promises he'll be with us in the pain, and that one day he'll do something about it. So I'm going to lead us through three prompts. You can pray by yourself. You can pray with somebody around you. I just want to pray for what happened in Texas this week. I want to pray for their families. I want to pray for our country. I want to pray that we might be shaped and that through our prayer we might shape the world around us. So let's start by praying for the people who lost people this week. Pray that they might know the presence of God. Pray that the Holy Spirit might comfort them in ways that we can't explain. Pray for people that lost people. That God draws near to them in ways they understand, know, and feel that they are not alone even though they've lost someone they love. Let's pray for the people who've lost people.
pray for the community of Valde. Pray that they heal from this. They're not defined by this. That it brings more unity than disunity. for our country that compassion might win out over hate that unity might win out over disunity that people might matter more than politics pray for our leaders that we might know how to go forward and do it in a way that binds people together instead of rips them apart Finally, we're going to pray for perspective. C.S. Lewis says that pain insists on being attended to, that God whispers in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. It's his megaphone for a deaf world. The pain we need release from is far bigger than a political party. <laughs> we need God. We need his ways, we need his presence, we need his peace. The problem with the world isn't fixed through politics, it's fixed through the people of God, remembering the goodness of God and living that out. So might we pray that this gives perspective to us. It allows us to see our deep-seated need for the goodness of God. It allows churches to live out that rhythm and that message in a way that makes God look beautiful. Might this shape our perspective around what we really need so we can find real fixes to the problems in our world. Might people see Jesus? God is good for my soul in the middle of times that don't seem good to shout that you are. To shout that your perspective is greater than mine. To shout that ultimately, ultimately, ultimately you will right the wrongs in this world. And in the meantime, you walk with us. Man, give us, give us the power of presence as we model that as followers of Jesus. Might we lead with love and how we act next? And might we be the answer to people's question about why evil exists as they see the presence and the promise of God and how we act. God, I'm thankful you're still good. Help us to remember that, even in weeks like this week. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus.